Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Joel Jimenez is a stand-up comedian, musician, and a native of Northeast LA. For years, he was the drummer for the number one live podcast in the world, Kill Tony. These days, you can find him at the world-famous Comedy Store. In regular rotation on some of LA's top comedy podcasts, he's a co-host on both the Dogs of Browntown and Lesser Known Characters podcasts, as well as the drummer for the punk rock band, Mad Peaceful. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Hell yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, man. It's a pleasure, a true pleasure. I think the best place to start with you is the beginning. You grew up in a little corner of Northeast LA, as I mentioned in the intro, called Frogtown, which is historically a pretty low-key neighborhood surrounded on all sides by two freeways in the LA River. Today, though, it's home to one of my favorite breweries, Frogtown Brewery, as well as a gourmet sandwich shop, an upscale Mexican restaurant, an artisan coffee shop, and even an art walk. And Frogtown's segment of the LA River, <laughs> for anyone not familiar with this part of the uh, the country, has been recently beautified with manicured trees and foliage that give it a more premium feel. But the neighborhood was a lot different when you were growing up in the 90s and 2000s. So what was it like back then? And what did you love about it? Yeah, it's funny when you're saying all that stuff. The words artisan coffee shop make me want to puke. But <laughs> I thought it might. I did have lunch at Spoke today with, with uh, my buddy Chappelle. But I, I don't know, man. It, it's so different. I hear people say a lot, LA doesn't have community or everybody's fake here. But Frogtown's a very small place. It's not big. And I think when I was growing up, I did have a very like neighborhood feel. And yeah, I don't know. It was pretty tight knit. I mean, my friend group was pretty small out here. It was definitely like a little more dangerous, I think. or I wouldn't even say a little more. I think that now there is almost zero to very little threat of any sort of danger. It's been completely gutted and gentrified. But it's good. I mean, people, there are some people that are still here that own their homes. And when I had a dog, I could walk my dog at night. It wasn't like super sketchy anymore. If I feel like that's nicer. I do worry that people that were from here cannot enjoy the nicer things now because they got priced out. But uh, it felt good, man. It felt like a neighborhood. I mean, I have probably have a very similar story to anybody else that grew up in a neighborhood setting. Maybe uh, their bullies were maybe not in gangs. We'd run around the neighborhood all the time on our bikes and have rock fights at the river. And a lot of my first sort of substance memories are at the LA River. It was really fun. I think we had the whole like fucking be home when it's dark sort of rules. And I just ran around the hood having fun as a kid, skateboarding, all of that. Yeah, it's a trip to see what it's become. I mean, they just opened a new really fancy restaurant a couple blocks from me. And it's fine. I do have a bit of a chip on my shoulder when I run into people. Sometimes I want to be like, who the fuck are you, man? I've, I've been here, dude. I grew up here. Where, where are you from? I feel like, and this is especially relevant, I think, to your background and your love of music, as I think neighborhoods and music especially are both very alike in that way, in that there's a feeling like if you've been a fan of a band since like day one before it got big, and then other people start coming around and they're posers and they're like, oh man, I've been a huge fan of this band since, and then they name like the sixth number one single. It's just a different feeling than if you were there since the beginning. For sure. I was a DJ in college for this very hardcore underground alternative music radio station. And they had a strict rule. It started getting annoying after a while, but it was like, if any of the musicians or, or artists that we play ever get play on mainstream radio, we will never play them again on our station. Wow. And so I'm very familiar with that vibe. Yeah. But I, I definitely understand it when it comes to like something like a neighborhood. I remember a similar transformation happening in Highland Park. I remember I live in Los Feliz, but some of my friends were moving into Highland Park in 2007, 2009, 2010. And it was this weird kind of transitionary period where you would have these like local artisan coffee shops starting to pop up. Some owned by residents who lived there for decades, others owned by newcomers. On that same street, you'd see dudes who were clearly in gangs just slow riding down the streets. <laughs> it was this weird mixture of the old and the new. We watched it happen around us and we were sort of one of the final frontiers of that. Oh God, I hate using that fucking word because I remember there were advertisements for these apartments that were going up that said, be a pioneer, be the first to own like riverfront property. And it, it just seemed gross. That's not the most appropriate phrasing. Yeah. Be a colonialist. No, it, um, <laughs> be a settler. 
Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, come, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's tame the savages. I think, no, it's wild. LA Weekly did an article like years back that said like the LA's best new neighborhood. And like my mom has been here a very long time. So it's like new to who? Like, yeah, it is interesting. The neighborhood is maybe a little bit different because you're talking about living where music is a bit of a spice to life. And where, you know, if music is the salt and pepper, then where you live is like the main course. But I try not to be that with music because especially now that the music industry is basically dead. I think that when bands that I like achieve some sort of success, I really try to be proud of them and like happy for these bands getting success in any capacity. Yeah, I hear that. But I get it. I'm still guilty of it. It's impossible not to gatekeep at some level. You know, it's just about finding a balance. Yeah, it's hard when you see like models on like a magazine cover wearing like a black flag shirt or something like that. But also, (laughs) but also it's like, it's cool because these bands have become so so much a part of the zeitgeist that they are like in just your regular everyday thing you know that i don't know even if it's just the logo or whatever there's something about that band that is even if it's just the buying into the cool factor there is something cool about that there was another interview where you said something similar about your childhood you said quote i grew up being a little shit at the river the la river for our listeners skateboarding having rock fights smoking weed we'd have band practice and play backyard shows in the neighborhood end quote And I think childhood can be a confusing and often chaotic time. We're trying to figure out what we're into, who we are, what we want to be. Mm -hmm. At that time, two of your biggest creative interests were punk rock music and skateboarding. Yeah. Which is about as natural a combo as peanut butter and jelly, in my opinion. Hell yeah, you said it, man, for sure. What hooked you about the skate punk scene? And why was the first song you ever played on drums at 14, the KKK took my baby away by the Ramones? Hell yeah, this guy's like Nardwar, dude. You got all the fucking... <laughs> this is awesome. This is great. You know how many like interviews I've done recently where I like... It's weird to hear about your life from other people. And I forget all this shit I say on podcasts. I don't know. I was talking to my mom about this. Like, I'm not super religious or, at all, but I'm like, thank God that was the path that I found. I had a cousin who skateboarded. He grew up here in LA in the 80s and always had a skateboard. And he was into New Wave and like Depeche Mode and stuff like that. And I think I heard the Ramones from him the first time. That was like in the culture by then. Hey, Blitzkrieg Bop was like in movies. And I guess skateboarding fed everything else. When I grew up, I, I liked soccer. I liked basketball. I liked that, but I was never really good at it. I'm still afraid of the ball, like baseball, all that. And I was into it. I was a big like Shaq fan. I loved the Lakers, all that. But then the older I got, I realized like a lot of the people that were like, fucking with me or bullying me that's what they did and so i turned me off from all that stuff and i think something about the individual nature of skateboarding really turned me on like that i could just do it on my own and it was cool man it was dangerous and you know through that you watch these skate videos and there's music in these videos and you start to gravitate towards that because it's like a the full sensory thing of watching these skate videos to this music and, it, and you're like that's fucking awesome they, they do go together and yeah i don't know man i just i've said this before that i think that there is a low buy-in rate maybe i would say with punk and hip-hop and i think that's why soccer is so big in like impoverished community because really all you need is a ball so there is something that is really accessible about it. And a lot of these bands come from similar backgrounds as me. A lot of people that didn't have money growing up and just doing what they could with what they had, I think was really attractive to me. My mom always like really stressed like self-learning and being curious about the world. And I think that when your punk rock and skateboarding puts you in control of the discovery of it all. And so you just like deep dive into this world and it's okay to do it on your own because it's such an individual thing. Your mom, there's a through line. And whenever you talk about your mom in these interviews, I think the through line is that your mom was a huge influence on you. She would take you to the Natural History Museum. Yeah. And she always had your back when it came to your creative endeavors. One of the quotes you said about your mom, which I found really endearing because I had a really good and still do have a good relationship with my mom. You said, quote, my mom used to bake brownies and cookies for all the neighbors so they wouldn't call the police, end quote, because you were playing your drums so loud. Yeah, my poor neighbors, man. (laughs) I look back, man, we're just turning up way too loud. I was lucky enough to have my parents on their house. So we have a garage and my drums were set up there and we would just, we would play music after school, like on a daily basis. And yeah, God bless my parents for even getting me a drum set at 14 because now I have friends who have kids and that's a big like debate with them. Should we do this? Is it loud? I mean, now with electric stuff, it's like, pretty doable. But yeah, my cousin Ivan was also pretty big influence musically. I mean, 
he had a lot of CDs and was like really into music. And I remember one time he said, oh, you like punk? You got to listen to the Sex Pistols. And I was like, okay. And then I bought a CD. And I remember my first concert ever was The Offspring. And uh, my first tape ever was Green Day's Dookie. I remember we went to Target, me, my mom, my aunt, and my cousin. And um, some of the kids at school, I went to a sleepover and they had played it. And I was, I like fell in love with it because everybody was singing along and it was poppy. And, and I remember me and my cousin asked our parents, like, can we split it? Can you guys split the tape and we'll share it? And I think I eventually just commandeered it and it became my tape. Then when The Offspring came out, I think Pretty Fly for a White Guy was probably the first, <laughs> you know, I was listening to K-Rock a lot as a kid and yeah. just something about it, maybe the humor, the sort of... And it was a great music video. Yeah, for sure. Very funny and didn't take themselves too seriously. And I went to see them at the Universal Amphitheater and my cousin Ivan and Aaron were my chaperones. And I, I remember they put like makeup on me and we spiked my hair. And there was a, like a pretty wild formative moment that I always look back to is like uh, Dexter asked the people to turn all the house lights on. And so house lights go up and I turn around and I'm looking at the audience and I see a bunch of Dead Kennedys logos like scattered. You know, people had Dead Kennedys shirts on and that logo really grabbed me as a kid. I was like, what's that? And I'm pretty sure I bought a Dead Kennedys shirt before I had ever even heard the band because I just thought it was what you wore if you were like in that world. I was definitely a, a poser, but it was some, something about it. The images and like even to this day, I mean, like you see the power of images with like Shepard Fairey and Obey and all that, like and even advertising at a more insidious level. It's like you see these things and, and something about these simple designs that just grab you man i've always i don't know what it was man the aesthetic of it all i don't know if it's skating it's hard to really crack the egg open and find the true path of it but i've said this before is if i would have listened to maybe rush for the first time when i started playing drums i probably would have quit i do want to talk about neil pert but before we get to pert i don't want to put my mom on blast but i can't remember dookie without remembering my mom's reaction to it uh-huh. like i said she's been supportive of all my creative endeavors she's listening to this conversation right now when it's published but I remember when I got Dookie for the first time, it was one of the first CDs I ever bought. And I was like listening to it in my bedroom. And I think my mom comes upstairs and she was like, what is this music? Yeah. Can I look at the, like the liner notes? And they had all the lyrics printed on the inside. And the moment she started reading the lyrics, she was like, Michael, we are going back to the mall and we are returning the CD. Hilarious. Yeah. And I was like 11 or something and she was just not having it. But speaking about the accessibility of punk, I think the analogy you made earlier, which is like punk and soccer are like a similar level of accessibility, whereas like maybe Neil Pert is like ice hockey. So like Neil Pert, for any listeners who don't know who he is, he's widely regarded as one of the best drummers of all time. He played for the band Rush for 40 years until his death in January 2020. And like his signature riffs that he developed were so recognizable and unique that when other drummers would use them, that they can be instantly identified and traceable back to Pert. But you said just now and, and in previous conversations, if you'd gotten like a Neil Pert record instead of something like Green Day, I don't think I'd be playing drums because I'd listen to it and be like, I can't fucking do that, end quote. Yeah. And there is something about the accessibility of punk rock music, like the simplicity of the chord structure. I read a comment on the YouTube page for the KKK Took My Baby Away song. The YouTube comment said, quote, no band has done more with only three chords, end quote. I absolutely agree, man. And I think this is true. Like other like now famous punk rock bands were similarly inspired by the Ramones to start their bands because just hearing, oh, wait, they're just playing three chords over and over in, in different sequences. Yeah. I can teach myself three chords. That means I can start a band. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think to this day, the Ramones are probably top three bands in my life. And I think that they're the reason that I'm still playing music. The KKK took my baby away was like a moment for me going like, I think I can do that. And yeah, man, I'll always cherish that band as like a huge inspiration to me. I thought of something when you were talking about the liner notes on Dookie. So like the type of relationship that I had with my mom was like, I remember being in the car and there's a lyric where he says, I went to a whore. She said, my life's a bore. And I remember asking, I was able to just ask my mom, what's a whore? And like, <laughs> she told me and she was like, yeah, here, I'm going to tell you, this is like a learning moment. I'm not going to say, don't say that. Don't use that word. This is what it is and shit like that. And uh, to this day, I can go to her with literally anything. And I feel like if I ever had kids, that's the way to go. Cause I feel like the more you ban something, the more the kid wants to do it. Oh yeah. You couldn't make a better trap for a child than to have a big red button that says, do not press on it. For sure. Yeah. Humans, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're all just pretty much big kids. Your playing has become 
pretty complex these days, which is a far cry from the often more straightforward style on a lot of punk rock records. So when did you decide to level up your music and delve into more complex drumming arrangements? It's a trip. Within the past few months, I've looked back at video and stuff of me and been like, oh shit, I wasn't even really aware. I didn't have an outside view of it, but I think it's just time. I think that back in the day when I was a kid, it was like wanting to show off, wanting to be the best, wanting people to go, damn, that dude's like really good. So when I was a teenager, it came from like an ego thing. But through that, you push and you got these athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo or like Messi, right? Like, or people will say Cristiano's like full of himself or Zlatan Ibrahimovic, like they are sort of egomaniacs in a way, but I don't think you achieve Kobe, whoever, you don't achieve a level of greatness without some sort of ego. I don't think I really have that at the moment. I'm just really grateful to still be doing it. When people I knew in high school find me on Instagram, they're like, are you still playing? And it's nice to know that I never really gave up on the dream. I I have zero options. I'm not going to get a fucking... I mean, I have worked a nine to five and all that. And I still have a, a day job. It's at the store, but it's just always kind of grabbed me, dude. I think I'm just like a true fucking wanderer. And uh, I don't know, complexity now, I think I think it just happened with time and stuff. And now with this band that I'm in, Mad Peaceful, we're really putting together everything we've ever learned in our lives to make an interesting thing. I think that boredom, you get sick of playing the same thing over and over again, and you want to kind of branch out and try new things. It's funny because I'll watch a couple videos of me drumming back in high school. And, you know, when they say, oh, give it up for Joel, our drummer, like you'll hear a bunch of girls wooing. And but back then you couldn't have fucking hit me across the face with that information. I would have, <laughs> I would not have believed you. I was completely oblivious to that. I mean, I was like, that's what I wanted. And I wanted the respect of my peers and stuff, but I I wouldn't have believed you. But now it's just like wanting to be creative and play new things. And luckily, I'm with some really badass musicians, man. And I'm playing with some of the best people I've ever played with now. And you want them to be good, you got to be good. We're all showing up and giving it 110%. And also, I think because I still have that mentality of I'm not classically trained, I'm not I don't know a lot about drum jargon and shit like that that what i can do is be a real a showman and i swear i will sweat and i will give you everything i have while i'm playing because i don't really know more than one speed it's like zero to a hundred i had to buy special sticks because i didn't really have any dynamics on my snare i just hit it the way i hit it and so i ended up having to get brushes or changing my cymbal setup or smaller drums or muffling, things like that. And yeah, even now with tuning drums, I can't believe I'll watch videos and go, oh, that sounds pretty good or recordings. And I don't know how I got there. It's really just repetition, man. I remember someone asking Dave Grohl years ago, how did you develop your signature drum playing style? Yeah. And he was like, that's just how I've always played. Yeah. I never set out to like make myself an icon of playing drums a certain way. It's just how I play them. And it's cool that people like it, but I never overthought it. But to make another music comparison, just hearing you talk about how you come to play and how you just follow your instincts reminds me of stuff I've heard when Paul McCartney talks about the Beatles. Huh. Because McCartney and Lennon were never famously never classically trained. They can't read sheet music. And I think this is a good way to transition to stand-up comedy, which like skateboarding and like punk music involves a lot of just going on instinct and living in the pocket. Yeah. And I think similarly, the Beatles were able to be as big as they were because how a stand-up comic, especially one who lives and dies on like riffing in the moment like you did in Kill Tony, is like being able to form those synapses in your brain, like a mental map in your head about how you can make connections between one topic and another topic to bring it together within a two-second window to make it funny. And I think that there's a subconscious level of learning that's happening in the background where you think like, all right, this person's wearing this. They just said this joke. Their face looks like this. Mm -hmm. Say this now. Go. Yeah. And then you see you're getting instant feedback as a comedian of whether or not that's working or not. In the same way that you get instant feedback from your bandmates, is this riff that I'm working on any good? If it's not, all right, made it my mental map. Let's expand it. Try something else. And I think there's that level of gut instinct that you either do or don't have as a musician or a stand-up comedian or a skateboarder where you either are able to form those mental connections in the moment and then build on that information like a library in your brain, or you don't have it. Yeah, 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 you got it. So I think also just real quick, Ringo Starr, a left-handed drummer who plays a right-handed drum kit, just like a same thing, I'm left-handed. I just didn't know you could set up your drums that way. Travis Barker's also left-handed, just played a right-handed kit. His drum teacher was like, if you want to play the drum kit, you just have to play this one. And so you just did it. And all these videos I was watching, everybody set up their drums that way. So I just didn't know there was another way. 
anyway, that was just a little, you brought up the Beatles and I'm not comparing myself to Ringo Starr, a fellow Ludwig artist, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know where that comes from. I wonder if a lot of it just comes from fear and some of it is just laziness and not really prepping and just being able to bullshit my way through, Mm. you know, just faking it till I make it. I think that's, that goes back to punk. That goes back to stand up. You always want to present like it's bigger than it really is. I think people maybe have a perception about me and don't really know what my everyday regular life is like. And I think a lot of that is due to like my stage persona and stuff like that. Yeah, your stage persona is rather outsized. For sure. (laughs) I would agree. And I just I quit drinking about eight months ago. And I thought for a long time that I was an extrovert. And now I realized I was just hammered all the time. Now I'm very quiet and a little bit withdrawn at times. And I enjoy good conversations with my close friends, but I don't know how much I'm out there being loud and stuff the way that maybe people think that I would be. Back in the Kill Tony days, people would meet me and be like, I thought you were going to be an asshole. And I was like, I'm going to kill you before you can get me. And if you get me, then I'm going to figure out a way to own it and, and make it crazy so people forget what you just did. Yeah. Speaking as someone who I wasn't necessarily a quiet kid growing up, I was a very extroverted kid. I loved raising my hand in class. Yeah. The way that I learn is by asking a bunch of questions and being really involved. And especially with a big curly afro and red glasses and braces with rubber bands that I would change depending on the holiday. So when it was Halloween, this was in fifth grade, I'd have orange and black rubber bands on my braces. I would have probably made my life easier if I just would have painted a target on my back and said, bully me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because that's pretty much exactly what happened. But I say that because I relate on a deep level and I see the connective tissue between something you said 10 minutes ago and something you just said now, which is you saw as a kid what your bullies were playing, like the activities they were doing, and that created a trigger in your mind between their activities and the bullies themselves. So you ran from those activities Mm -hmm. into something they weren't doing. And that's what you ended up falling in love with. And I see an emotional through line between what you said about that and also this idea that you were drinking alcohol because you were unsure if the person you are naturally without it would be embraced. And so you tried to become someone else because you thought that's who people wanted you to be. Am I off base there? I think that some people do that for sure. I I get where you got there. I think alcohol for me was always a way to just calm my anxiety down. I'm, I'm a very anxious, nervous person. And for me, alcohol was like the solution to that. I've always been myself, even when I was like more boisterous and stuff, that was just an upped level of who I am. Mm. No, I think for me, it was just a way to quiet down the voices and feel comfortable. I think I've always felt a bit uncomfortable in my skin or a little bit different and not not special or anything, but just I think that goes back to punk and all that too. And just the way the world is that whatever the majority is into is usually wrong. And you see it with whatever politics are or anything like that. It's usually there is like a small group fighting for their rights. And I think history shows that a lot of times those people are right. I I don't know. This is just maybe like a thing that like how birds can fly in a V together or dolphins fucking swim together. I just always felt like different. I've always known that I've looked at the world and gone, this isn't the way that things should be. And just trying to find a way to find peace and be happy within that huge system that governs your everyday life and trying to like live alternatively and find peace in a life that you want to create for yourself. I think for me, alcohol and just substances in general are just a way to quiet down all the negative thoughts and the emotions of the panic that I would have on a daily basis. That's all probably chemical imbalances or whatever Catholic school or whatever fucked me up as a kid. (laughs) Oh, I feel that, man. Look, I've talked about this on the podcast before as someone who has self-medicated for depression in really unhealthy ways Yeah. before eventually going to like cognitive behavioral therapy and then doing Lexapro and eventually just doing the work. I have used alcohol or marijuana in the past as a crutch because, Mm -hmm. and I very much relate to what you said, it sounds pretentious when you say, oh, I see the world differently. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that as some kind of brag. I'm saying that like, it is a mechanism you wish you could turn off because it drives your anxiety and your depression because you keep having this question in your mind, why isn't everyone else freaking out about this the way that I am? Yeah. Why do I feel so uncomfortable in this room right now and no one else does? And it makes you feel weird and strange. And so I totally relate to that. On that note, Joel, you officially started your stand-up career sometime around 2011, 2012, if I've got that right. Were you like 22, 23? December 21st, 2011. I don't know how old I was. I'm 36 now. So it's been 11 years. So that would be what, 25, like maybe 24, something like that. 
And real quick, going back to the alcohol thing, it was like for a little while on Kill Tony and things like that, I did feel like maybe I had to hit a certain level of insanity for people to be like, oh, that's Joel Burke. That's what he does. Where like maybe sometimes I just wanted to chill and do the show and not have to drum battle. So I, I don't think you were completely off. I want to do a deep dive on Kill Tony too, because I can especially understand, you know, as a fan of the show on the outside looking in, there's no way to be in that show and be low energy. Like you would not make it, I don't think. But I think to lay some groundwork here for the start of your comedy career. So you started in December, 2011. Comedy, like we talked about, has always had that kind of punk rock vibe. Mm. Because I think the nature of stand-up comedy is to push boundaries. It's to rebel. Punk music, to people who are unfamiliar with it, it's not unusual for some punk bands to be antagonistic to their own audiences. Yeah. Because it's part of the aesthetic of punk. And I think similarly, it's not uncommon for some stand-ups to be antagonistic with their own audiences because that's kind of part of their bit. Yeah. So before your official start as a stand-up, when did you first become interested in stand-up comedy as an art form? When did you first start thinking, hey, maybe this is something I want to pursue? I've always loved it since I was a kid, but I thought it was impossible. I thought it was like superhuman because I was a big George Carlin fan and Chris Rock. And I mean, they're on another level. And I didn't know. I was doing theater for a while. I did theater for a few years and I met this guy who was working stage crew on a play I was doing. And we used to do bits and stuff backstage before I went out. And he said, hey, I take this improv class in Boyle Heights. Like it's like a donation based class. You should come do it. And so I went there and I realized through that, the things I said made people laugh. And I was like, oh shit, that connection was made that I could speak words that would make people giggle or whatever. And then they turned me on to like podcasts. I had some old shitty fucking shuffle or something. And I, I remember they told me about the Nerdist podcast. And I remember listening to that and hearing them talk about the meltdown and the open mic there and comedy and it just opened up the world, the, the culture a little bit for me. And I remember going to Meltdown like a week before I was going to go sign up to just watch. And I went with like a six pack of beer and I just sat and watched everybody go up on the open mic. And then I, I went the next week, but I didn't get called in the raffle. But I met some guy in the lobby who gave me a flyer for another mic. And I went to that mic and I did a couple shots, like airplane shots of Jack out front that had a Pabst and went up and like it went okay. It wasn't awful, you know. Okay, so before you did your first one-minute set on Kill Tony, mm -hmm. you were playing in the Baby Boys band with Pat Reagan, who was one of two members of the Kill Tony band at the time, along with Jeremiah Watkins. Yeah. You've since collaborated with both of them a ton over the years. You actually just appeared on Jeremiah's podcast, Scissor Brothers, and rather disgustingly drank half a bottle of full sugar maple syrup, which I definitely have questions about. You met Pat, I think, at open mics, right? Yeah, for sure. There was an open mic called uh, the Hollywood Hotel. Everybody always thinks it's like some hotel, like a big Hollywood hotel, but it wasn't. It's on Lexington and Vermont. Oh, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, and they did an open mic there in the basement. And at the time, Pat was like a LA comedy darling. He was killing it. And um, I used to just watch him. And I remember I went up to him one time and I just told him, I hear drums to your music. If you ever want to play music, let me know. I'm a drummer. And it had been years since I wanted to play drums. I was over being in bands. I don't know. I always felt like I was maybe the most dedicated member in every band that I was in. Mind you, they would all disagree with that. That was just my own thing. But uh, yeah. And then he started a band. It was me, him and James Austin Johnson, who's on SNL now. And we just started playing these songs. We got together. I like auditioned. And, and then, yeah, we started playing. We played a couple of shows, mostly like a big portion of LA alternative comedy scene would come out and support. And yeah, and then we just started playing. And I think Pat had got into the store somehow and he was doing warmups at Roast Battle, which is a show at the comedy store. And he would always tell me, oh, you got to come to the store. Like, you got to check this place out. And I didn't get my license till I was 30. So the store was like a world away for me because a bus would take fucking forever to get there. But I started rolling with him. He would like pick me up and I'd go with him and hang out. And then I guess one night he had a pretty great set at the roast battle and Tony was there and Rogan was there and Red Band. He had crushed that night. So they called up Pat and were like, hey, come be the band leader on this show. And so I would just roll out with Pat and sign up. For a few weeks, I would sign up. And when I finally got up, I did okay. And Tony after said, hey, every time you're here and you see me, I want you to say hello. And so I like, I did it. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm in. And I didn't have a drum set small enough to fit up in the belly room because it's a real small space. And one day I was at a thrift store and I found an actual kid's, like a toy bass drum, but it was made of wood. It was nice. And I told Pat, he drove me to the drum store. We got new heads for it. And that was it. I was there that Monday, fell in love with the place. And I was like, I'm... 
I say I sank my claws into the carpet and I was like, I'm never leaving. Like, they're going to have to kick me out of here. Yeah, it was wild going back and watching your very first one minute set. That was February 8th, 2016. It was episode 142 of Kill Tony. I'll put it in the show notes. You started your one minute set with, quote, is it hot in here or is it just me having a full blown panic attack? Yeah. Actually, I should back up a second because if anyone's not familiar with Kill Tony and like what the premise of the show is, so basically, Kill Tony. Like I said in the intro, it's the number one live podcast in the world. It's watched by often tens of thousands of people simultaneously when it streams, and then hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of people after the stream. Started in 2013. The premise is like brilliantly simple. So basically, there's Tony Hinchcliffe. He's a stand-up comic in his own right. There's Brian Redband, who's with him, also a comic. And then they'll have either a comedic guest, even up to three or four comedic guests, join them on the panel. And then the conceit is they'll just have a bucket with names. So there are people who are in the crowd who want to try their hand at stand-up comedy. They'll put their names in a bucket. And then over the course of the next two hours, Tony will put his hand in the bucket, draw names out. If your name is drawn, he calls you, you go on stage, you have one minute to kill. To our listeners here who aren't familiar with that, if you do really well in comedy, you kill or you murder. So that's the Kill Tony name. And you have one minute. And then after the minute probably comes the most enjoyable part, which is then Tony interviews you for the next seven to 10 minutes and you either do well in your answers or you bomb hilariously in front of a packed room of people (laughs) and in front of an audience of hundreds of thousands of people. But there was one point when Tony was talking with you and he said, do you always close your eyes when you talk? And I say that to chart the growth because like you were saying, 12 episodes later on Kill Tony number 154, you're playing drums for the Kill Tony band and then you got your own microphone your own comedic quips by episode 200 Mm -hmm. walk us through like how you got from the dude joking about on stage panic attacks with his eyes closed to kill tony episode 202 (laughs) when you were on such a hot streak of off the cuff jokes by that point that you took on a, a new on stage nickname that fans would chant for hundreds of episodes thereafter so how did you get from that dude saying am i the only one having a full blown panic attack To the guy who literally, and I hope I don't blow up your ego too much here, Joel, you would have some of the funniest lines on any Kill Tony episode, literally just riffing off your mic from your drum stand. Yeah, the easiest way to explain it is I would just feed Pat jokes from behind the drums and he would do them and they would like bomb, obviously, because they weren't in his comedic voice. The timing it takes for me to say something to him, for him to find the moment to say at the moment I passed, it would not work. And so... Sometimes it would, but I think it bombed too many times in a row one time. And Pat just turned to me and he goes, you should say it. And so I just got up, grabbed the mic, said it, and it like worked. And then that's a drug, man. You just get hooked on that. And when I first joined the show, it was like everything moved so quickly. I felt it all. It was like a beehive, like everything's just buzzing. And the more that I was there, it became like the matrix where it slowed down and I was able to like it's a really a weird thing to explain. Let's say it was going 100 miles an hour. Eventually, it got to be 50, maybe even slower at times where it just really actually slowed down and I was able to find these moments. And also, you learn the culture of the show. You learn what works, what doesn't. There were times where I was worried of bombing, but then you would see your heroes come up and be guests and even they would do jokes that wouldn't work. And so you're like, okay, oh, we're all, this is just part of it. This is part of the process. It's like a shared spirit of ruthlessness. Like you were saying, like huge names like Joe Rogan, Mark Norman, Shane Gillis, Gilbert Gottfried. I'll tell you too, that that first episode when I did stand up and the eyes closed thing, Dom Herrera said, you're like if Gilbert Gottfried was human. <laughs> and I'll always remember that, man. It was like wild. And then I got to meet Gilbert in New York and it was really incredible, man. I got to be in a green room with the guy and me and Tony went to go get him a sandwich and all this shit. And yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's a trip, dude. I think what it is, it's like positive reinforcement. Like when you're training a dog, it's who the fuck doesn't want to hear their name chanted or be like, yeah. What's funny is now in my standup, I'm really trying to believe in myself and realize that I do have that safety net of a quick thinking brain. Because when you're in the moment, you don't feel it. You guys see the moment happen and then you hear the quip but you don't realize the fucking mental anguish and turmoil that's going on in my mind, like a little rat running around. What's the joke? Figure it out. Okay, and go. And you just throw it out. And if it works, it's great. I think it got better when I got my own mic because again, there was a timing thing. And when I first started, people would see me stand up. And so now there's this expectation. And so once it became immediate, right to my left, I was able to just lean in and shorten the path. 
And that helped a lot. And support from Tony and Brian and everybody telling me that was good or whatever. It, it really is just positive reinforcement and wanting to belong. Like these guys, these people like me. And yeah, I mean, I had a moment in Ireland where I was like almost taken aback and I sighed really loudly. And Tony's like, are you all right? And I was like, this is crazy hearing a bunch of Irish people say Joelberg was a trip, man. Yeah, so a few things to note there. Again, for our audience who might not be familiar with Kill Tony, and that's the interesting thing about the age of the internet is that something can be legitimately huge, but also niche at the same time. If you're a fan of the, especially the LA and I guess now the Austin comedy scene, it's impossible not to know what Kill Tony is. But then the country is humongous, it's 340 million people. So I would say this to anyone who's listening to this episode right now. One, I'm going to post some compilations of Joel's best riffs and roasts in the show notes, along with a couple full episodes of Kill Tony, I will tell people this is fair warning. This podcast is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> there is a lot of inappropriate humor, a lot of humor that many people would find offensive, but that is known when you enter and you're in this area and no one takes offense at the joke. So just understand that. I go back and I'm, I cringe at some of the shit that I said, <laughs> like in, in the moment as a character or whatever. It's there's stuff I probably wouldn't say nowadays, but I was in the mode. Oh, for sure. And just to make special note of something that you said, like watching some of these old streams, it's like when you nailed it, like the positive reinforcement you get from the crowd and folks like Tony and other comics, I have to imagine was like a drug. But it's important to say this was not some kumbaya setting. When you or anyone else was like late with a joke, like even five seconds late or like the joke just didn't land, you would be ripped for it. For sure. So it wasn't just this thing of just positive reinforcement. Even when you were on fire, there had to have been something in the back of your head that said, like, any moment I could bomb, and that's going to bring my joke riffing to a halt. Yeah, and it happened quite a bit. I think that the more it happens, the more you become okay with it, and you, you can scream about it. Or I remember just, I would just yell, fuck, or something like that, just to, I don't know, you learn how to deal with it a little more gracefully, or at least be funny in the fact that you failed. But yeah, it's terrifying, dude. A lot of it is fear, and fear is a great motivator. <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. To call back to something you said earlier about how you try and keep the accomplishments you achieved at Kill Tony in mind when you do your own stand-up. Worst case scenario, Joel, you could always go up as Ski Mask Pete. I thought you killed with that mask on. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That was <laughs> actually what's funny is that was a good friend of mine. His name is Joey. He was a comic. He quit comedy. He moved. And right before I went up, I got the idea. I was like, I knew his act really well. And he just sent me one of his set lists. And I was like, I'm going to do his jokes. And because uh -huh. I figured it was far away enough from my regular voice to sneak under the radar a little bit. Yeah, the chameleon infestation joke was absolute gold. Oh, it's great. Dude, he's brilliant, man. Yeah, what's funny is his mom was an English teacher or is an English teacher and you could really tell it in his joke writing style. He was a really great comic, but he's out in Seattle. He's a skateboarder, an incredible skateboarder. So he's found his own way now. But yeah, I love that guy. Again, for our listeners who might not be familiar with Kill Tony, saying that Joel was the drummer for the Kill Tony band is like just totally underselling it because as we've talked about here, the band in and of itself and the members of the band were characters and comics. Again, some of the funniest lines were coming from folks like you and Jeremiah. And you guys got into this tradition of dressing up as a different set of characters every single week after week. You had this line that I thought was really insightful from a narrative and a character point of view. You said, quote, the characters I would do that fell flat, I realized is because they didn't have a point of view. So understanding Jolena's point of view, I thought really made me feel more comfortable in the character. I didn't feel like I had to think of jokes. I just knew how she would react to certain things, end quote. So I'd love for you to expand on that, that idea of really fleshing out a character and then letting the character's POV be the humor. And I'd love for you to tell us more about Jolena and some of your other favorite characters from those days. I learned that from Jeremiah. He was the one that said it that way and it really clicked. We would do like when we were the Super Mario Brothers, it was like, it was fun. It was, they were good costumes, but we really had nowhere to go with them because they are like actually literally two-dimensional characters. And then I realized, yeah, my favorite characters were the ones that had the full-on point of view where I, I knew where they were coming from and I could riff as them. I would say Jolena, probably one of the tops. Bill Billingsley was really fun when I was drinking. I recently just did it sober and had no idea how to get there. And I wasn't method acting when I was being Bill Billingsley. I was fucking drunk off my ass a lot of the times. But um, who else? Let's see. Was that episode 605? The comedy mothership return that you did? Yeah, that's the one where I, I was sober. And it was just like a little funky because also we were changing characters. So I didn't really have time to settle in. It was just go time. Mm. Yeah, that the rednecks were really great because like, you know, 
which way they would take things. Whenever I play Tony, it's really fun because I've been around him a lot and I know how he reacts. The Mafia characters were good. I think Big Panic is a good one, but also very similar to Jolina. And Jolina, you based her on women you knew growing up in your own neighborhood. For sure. Yeah, just either my brother's friends or people that I went to like day camp at the rec center with or people's sisters, people I, that I knew in high school, especially in LA. It's like, obviously, she's a cartoonish, ridiculous version of these people. But I know how they would react to any given situation, or at least like the phrasing that they would use. And that I feel like that made it a really fully fleshed out thing. I think doing that character in Ireland was like pretty sick too to bring this like LA centric Chicana, like Chola character to like Europe was a fucking trip to me, dude. What's so fun as an audience member about a character like Jolina? Because it wasn't uncommon once a character became established for you guys to keep bringing them back like every few dozen episodes or like once or twice a year. And so what's great is with a really well thought out, fleshed out character, in a way you're training the audience how to anticipate and how to react to what they're saying. Because once you see Jolina for a couple hours or a couple episodes, when someone else on the stage says something, oh, Jolina is going to react this way to what they just said because I know Jolina this well. Yeah. And so some of the humor is in the anticipation, waiting, knowing that Jolina is going to react a certain way. One of the ways to build suspense is not to just show an explosion going off in a building but to show the audience the bomb ticking under the table and then letting the conversation play out for 10 minutes while the audience knows the bomb is there. And comedy, I think, works the same way. Jolina is the bomb underneath the table. And so you're just waiting, watching. So when someone's on stage and Tony says something or one of the comics says something, and Jolene is going to have a POV about that because you've watched her four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours already. I think it's just such a brilliant way to train your audience to anticipate your comedy. Yeah, I think with stand up too, it's great because when people don't know your voice, you're spending the first five to 10 minutes explaining your voice and who you are so that they'll laugh at the rest of your act because if they don't know where you're coming from, they might not get it. And so that is a bit of an advantage that maybe more well-known comics have is that come their second special, they don't have to spend the first 10 minutes saying, this is who I am. This is how I think. This is why this is funny. They can just start talking and people already know where they're coming from. Say Theo Vaughn or Chris Rock, all the greats, man. Everybody, Marin does it really well. It's now we know that Marin is this way. This is his comedic voice. And so he doesn't really have to spell that out anymore. He can just jump into the meat of his act. And I'm slowly, I'm still, it, it's funny because I've been doing stand up now 11 years and people still think that I'm just new to it because they thought I was just the drummer on a show. But um, I'm still in the realm of showing the world what my comedic voice is. And I think it's going to take a while because until you have any sort of like success where people have already seen your act and stuff, then you get a bit of that privilege. It doesn't make it the writing or anything any easier, but I don't know, maybe it does. Maybe it flows out a little more because you don't have to give as much setup. Is that a double edged sword? You become famous or well-known for being part of either an ensemble or being part of a larger entity like Kill Tony. And people really come to love you and associate you with that show. But in a sense, it could feel like, if I'm reading this correctly, it can also stunt both the growth of your own personal brand, like establishing yourself as Joel Jimenez, person separate from Kill Tony, person separate from all the characters you know me playing. And also, I imagine just because Kill Tony is such a work-intense enterprise, that it probably just sucks a lot of the time that you would otherwise spend developing your own act, taking nights off to go up and rehearse that. It feels like it's a, both a blessing and a curse. I imagine you're very grateful for the years you spent on Kill Tony, but it seems like it didn't come without costs. I never really feel like that because stand-up is the long run anyway. And so like when I first started, someone said it takes five years to learn your voice, 10 years to get good at it, and then 15 to 20 or more to make it or make any sort of money off of it. So I'm 11 years in. It's, if anything, it made me more visible and I get more opportunities because of it. I could sit around and be like, yeah, it's a bummer. But overall, it's been a real blessing. You know, I get maybe booked on shows and stuff that maybe somebody who has been doing it the same amount of time as me doesn't have the opportunity because they don't have the visibility that I did. No, I think it's all good. I think that any sort of challenges or anything like that are predominantly challenges that just come with being a stand-up comic anyway. Who the fuck do I think I am that like anybody would even know me? Because like we said, it, it is a huge podcast, but it is still very niche. You know, it's like these punk bands, they might be huge, but like maybe 
you know, Milo from the descendants can go into a market and like people aren't going to fucking be like, oh my God, that's Milo. Maybe like me or something. But uh, no, I, I think that's just what it is, man. That's just how it is. It's fucking that stand up. It's the long haul. And you got to just enjoy the process. And when I get off stage and somebody says, oh, I didn't, I've never seen your act. I only know you from Kill Tony. That was really good. And so you could see it as an opportunity where people are let down or you could be as an opportunity to go. Maybe once they learn more about me, they'll like me even more. They'll be like, whoa, I'm like you. I think my standup is a lot more relatable than my character on Kill Tony. I think my character on Kill Tony was very boisterous and confident. And and I am, but I think I have more in common with the irregular everyday person than I don't in my standup. And I talk about all those struggles and stuff in my act. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answers that. Watching your standup, it's night and day from your persona or the Joel Berg. Slight tangent, before I learned... And traced the history back to how you got that nickname. For the longest time, I was like, oh, cool. Like a dude who's like Hispanic and Jewish. That's a pretty cool combo. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) I'm 2% Jewish. I did Ancestry.com. I mentioned a little earlier that you just had the Kill Tony band reunion at Joe Rogan's recently opened Comedy Mothership in Austin, Texas. What are your thoughts on the Austin comedy scene? Could you see yourself ever going there? And has the move of a lot of LA comics to Austin changed the dynamics of the LA comedy scene over the last three or four years? Yeah, I think the Austin comedy scene is very young. I think it's like, it's got that energy of a new thing. And I think it's cool. One thing that like people always say, don't start in LA. There's always this who's in the room syndrome of what if a manager's here, or a producer's here. And I think that sometimes that can be a bit of a hamper, like if you're nervous or maybe you get seen too early or you're not ready or you're worried about bombing in front of some executive or blah, blah, blah. I never felt that way. I started here. I didn't know any better. I was just from here. I did it. I think what's great about Austin is they can really hone their skills and they, they have a lot of places within walking distance to do multiple spots a night. And and you see it. The people that are good are getting good really fast and really learning how to work these crowds there. I would say that is that's the biggest benefit is like the stage time they are in a bit of a, a creative incubation. I don't know. It just seems buzzing. It seems new. They get a lot of the, the stage time. All that is a real huge benefit. And once they get really good, they can decide if they want to stay there or move to New York or LA or Chicago or, or Seattle or whatever it is. And they'll have a really nice tool belt when they move. Me, I don't know. I don't see myself moving there ever. I made that choice when the show moved. I love Texas. It's fun. I don't think I would live there. I'm 36, man. If I would have gone anywhere, it would have been New York and it would have been when I was younger, like maybe in my 20s. I feel like I'm too old for that. Who knows where the fuck I end up in 10 years? I'm open to positive change. But yeah, but at the time being, I'm a door guy at the store now. It's something I've wanted for a really long time. And I'm going to stay there until until I feel like I've done what I want to accomplish there. In the past, it was like, I always wanted to be at the store. That seemed untouchable. Now I'm there. A couple door guys all just got passed as paid regulars now. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, my friends just got passed. I'm in the arena now. So as long as I don't drop the ball and like all of that, it's definitely a possibility in my future. And I love the store and I would really like to have that as an accomplishment. It would mean a lot to me to get my name on that building someday because it felt like an impossible dream a few years ago. I would say the LA comedy scene changed because comedy is oversaturated as it is. And I get it. Like people want to try it. People want to do this. So I would say when people moved, it just opened up paths for maybe some people who would not have been seen if if it had been too crowded. And maybe some people got a little more visibility because the herd got thinned out a little bit. And it's been great, man. A lot of new people at the store, a lot of really great comics. So I would say that's the biggest thing. And I think this thing's big enough for everyone. I think Austin's going to have its thing. New York has its thing. Everybody's got You just join the scene that you get in. But I guess by by the nature of LA being such a big place and an industry-based place, quote unquote, I think that when people leave, all that people do is move up in line a little bit. I heard Jay Leno said this thing about like, he would go sign up at these mics and you'd have to wait in line. And so people would be like, I'm not going to wait in line. And they would get out of line and then you would just move up into their spot. And that's like a good representation of what stand-up is. If you just stay in line, don't quit, don't kill yourself you will inevitably continue to move up as long as you keep working. So I think a lot of folks who are listening right now, when they hear that you're working the door or you're the door guy, or when you're talking about friends getting passed, 
people might not have the context for why being a door guy at the comedy store is so significant, right? Because a lot of folks might think, oh, you're just working the door. What are you, security or just someone stamping people when they're coming in? So could you walk us through briefly and how it relates to the trajectory of your career, what the kind of hierarchy and order of operations is when you're trying to become a regular comic at the comedy store? Yeah, I had a kind of non-traditional path there, but I think a lot of it is you hang out a lot. You sort of do your shows and then end up at the store after after your shows and hang out and show your face. And then when you have friends that are there, they'll vouch for you. You get to go up on maybe potluck and then from potluck, you become friends and family. And then from friends and family, people will maybe recommend you to be a door guy. And the best way I've heard it explained is being a door guy at the store is like Ivy League for comedy. It's probably the highest. It's a really big honor. And I think a lot of people really want that job. And it's a lot of people's dreams to be a door guy. Marin was a door guy, Bobby Lee, Ari Shafir, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams. So we're in a lot of like really great company. And now that I'm a door guy, you get your development spots. And as things move up, you can become a paid regular. Paid regular means you get your name on the building and you get to perform there often and you get paid. And for comedy fans and for people that are comics and love the lore and the history of it all, it is to me, there is nothing higher and there's nothing better than that. I love, we're like a family there, man. And, I love, and I've said that about, and I know a lot of toxic workplaces say we're like family, but I was talking to Jesse Johnson recently about it. And I was like, why do you think like it's different here? And she said, it's because we're all going to know each other for the rest of our lives. You know, this is the path that you choose. And so it is truly more of a familial thing than if you're working at CVS or some sort of office job. Yeah, I don't know. It's incredible, man. I, even my worst night there is still really great. And I'd rather have an awful night in a historic building than at a someplace that isn't, you know, an office job or something. And actually speaking of, I don't know if it was your worst night, might have been your worst morning. You mentioned earlier, you've been sober eight months now. On the topic of alcohol, you said on the Scissor Brothers podcast, which is co-hosted by your friend Jeremiah Watkins and also Steve Lee, who's affectionately known as Stevie Weeby, you said, quote, people would ask me, what do you like? I'd say all of it, end quote. And you're referring to alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk us through the event that led to you getting sober? You were hosting a potluck at the Comedy Store. And for our listeners, that's their name for Open Mic Night. Your name was on the marquee. This is something you wanted for 10 years. And you finally got it. And then you woke up the next morning. Can you walk us through that moment when you woke up? Yeah, I mean, I, I always had those sort of mornings with alcohol. It was like, and I'm not like a crazy drunk. I don't get into fights. I'm very loving. I'm not like, I don't go to jail. I don't do, I didn't do anything crazy at potluck either. I mean, I got into my boxer briefs, but that's normal for me. It's just full on panic, man, like sweaty and just a really intense worry. And when I woke up that morning, I, I had sort of been reevaluating my relationship with alcohol for quite a few years now. And just, I was like, oh, I'll drink when it's a celebration. Then everything becomes a celebration. And I don't know if I know how to do that. And at this point, who knows, I might go off the rails and you might whatever, but I don't know if I'm willing to risk it to see if I can drink like that or handle it. I think it's just, you wake up with an intense fear, man, intense fear, worry, sadness, regret. What did I say? Who did I talk to? What did I do? And also that mixed with these visceral physical feelings of like your heart racing and feeling like you're having a heart attack. And I was in the fetal position, man. And I had a, I couldn't go back to sleep. I was really worried. I ended up like taking a Xanax to go back to bed. And I remember just waking up, not being able to look at photos of my name on the marquee or any sort of like Instagram things about me hosting. And I was like, why am I doing this to myself? This seems like self-harm at this point. I don't need to, I can cut this out. It was tough. It was tough for a long time. I'm not really triggered by people drinking around me. I was really triggered by comedy green rooms because of the fear I would get in there and I would just order a double vodka soda and just start melting away those like panicky feelings. So I had a bit of a moment at Rogan's Club because the green room is so nice and there's like alcohol there and I was away from home and I was like, is this the time it happens? And I just saw a cigar on the table and I was like, can I smoke this? And they said, yeah. And so I just hit the cigar and I was fine. I was like, okay, this is enough for me right now. And I don't know, man, honestly, my life has been probably the best it's been in the last... Life is tough for everyone. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I find it easier to regulate my emotions. I find that my relationships with people are a lot better. I'm not waking up completely depressed. I used to go to the hospital with panic attacks back in the day. The day we were leaving to England, I went to the emergency room because I was freaking out, man, at such a crazy level. And 
there was no way to pull out of the tour. You make these agreements and your flight is booked and people are counting on you. You're part of a team and there was nothing I could do. And that was like a really scary moment. And now that I look back, alcohol was fueling a lot of that. Like now I'll panic, but I can breathe my way out of it. But when I was drinking, it was like, it would grab a hold of me, man. Really dark, man. Like I, I was never, I was never suicidal, but I, but it got, I would say a very thin line away from willing to do anything to make that fear and pain and anxiety stop. I'm scared of death. So that's not, I don't think that would ever be an option for me. And I have my mom and I have a lot of really good friends that were there for me and in those times. And I, I need to get into therapy soon. That's my next, I'm sort of like this last few years has been me becoming an adult in a way. I just got a bunch of dental work done. I'm almost done with that. I gotta, I'm just tackling these things piece by piece. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's been great, man. I think I'm addicted to nicotine, but that's fine. It doesn't make me sad. And I think that it's damage control at that point. It's overall the gifts that I've received these last couple of months has, has been really great. And I know that if I stay on this path, that life will continue to bloom for me. Yeah, it's been good, man. I think today might be my eight months. I'm going to check this calendar I have, but yeah. Well, that's fantastic, man. Back in 2021, this is before you got on the path to sobriety. In a video series on YouTube called Relentless Ones, you said, quote, I would like to be in the moment more. I want to smell the roses a little more. Get up, have my fucking coffee, and let the sun hit my face. Hopefully everything will come with that, end quote. So my question now is, as Joel looking back on that guy who at the time was still drinking, where are you with that goal now, sober in 2023? And how are you working on being in the present? And what are some things you've been doing to stay grounded and in the now? Oh, man, damn, I got a little emotional when you said that. I think that's something I really want. I strive for that peace and have a happy, healthy life. I think hearing you say that right now is like, it has been like that lately. I think I have been letting the sun hit my face and enjoying life, staying sober, telling your friends you love them, being a part of projects that you're excited to do, really working your craft, enjoying like I'm enjoying we're about to record on the 5th and 6th of May. And I'm like, really looking forward to that and looking forward to all these sets that I have and the new podcasts I've got. And yeah, man, the bigger your world gets, the smaller you need for your everyday life. So just yeah, I don't know, checking in with friends and trying to eat better. I do jujitsu a lot. Uh, I've been getting tattooed a lot. You have to stay out for at least seven days, but it's always there. Working out, eating good, exercising, being around friends. I think now that I'm not drinking, I'm forced to be in the moment because I, as much as my mind races, there are times where you have no, no option but to be where you are because you can't numb it or anything like that. But uh, yeah, trying to be a good person and just help other people when you can and being grateful for what you have. Yeah. But I think if I just keep pushing on this, I might be able to reach where my most constant place that I am mentally is calm. I would really like that. That's great, man. And I relate to a lot of what you're saying. And I think most people do, whatever their struggles might be, whether it's with alcohol or otherwise eating, being present, I, I find it so much easier to externalize my love and my care and my attention, it's much harder to internalize it. You know, like there was a, a saying, I can't remember who said it, but it really stuck with me. And whenever I find myself in a place where I'm not really doing a lot of self-care, I try and remind myself of the saying, which is you should treat yourself like someone who you are responsible for caring for. Or like you as a kid too, yeah. When I was single, like I found it just, I just wouldn't cook for myself a lot. Just like ordering out, and I'd stay up till super late hours and then I'd feel like shit when I woke up the next morning. And But I'd be like, ah, who cares? I want to stay up. I'm in a relationship now and it's I find myself cooking much more, not because she would eat unhealthily, left her own devices, but I feel a sense of responsibility because I love her and care for her. And so I want to do things that would help her with her life. And I find myself oftentimes thinking, man, why don't I treat myself as well? <laughs> and I think a lot of people get themselves stuck in where they treat people outside of themselves really well, but they don't treat the person inside all that well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm trying to get there. I I'm single at the moment and it's just been like really learning to like myself and be comfortable with myself being alone and self-care and trying to sleep on time and read. And, you know, if I'm going to just lay around, I might as well spend that time bettering myself. It's a struggle, but I'm trying. I think that even though life isn't perfect and it is hard and things are going on for everyone, I think this is some of the most happy days that I've had the last couple of months. 
I don't know where you find the time for any personal alone time. Me either, dude. You have so much going on between your stand-up and your band and your two podcasts and then all your podcast guest appearances. So I'm so grateful that you were able to make the time. And I say this as a recommendation to anyone listening to this. Please go to the show notes because the characters that you play, Joel, on Kill Tony and elsewhere and your commitments to the bit, they're absurd, hilarious, incisive, cutting, so in the moment. You're so sharp. But I think what we've seen from this conversation is that you're just an intensely thoughtful guy. And so it's just been a real pleasure. So thank you again, Joel, for the time you spent with us today. And thanks for your comedy. Man, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the research. This was really fun. It was a great interview. You never know what you're getting into. So I, I really appreciate it, man. I think my mom might like to listen to this. She got a couple good shout outs on this. So. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 